Good morning, everybody, and thank you for coming. This is really a great turnout, and uh, it's, uh, I hope it's going to be a lot of fun for everybody today. I, I know it's going to be fun for me because I'm going to learn a whole bunch from all of you, which is the point. Uh, my name is Dan Gilmore. I'm uh, a fellow at the Berkman Center and director of the uh, new Center for Citizen Media, which is affiliated with the Berkman Center and the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley. And uh, this is the uh, first, I don't know, annual, semi-annual, semi-monthly, whatever, uh, uh, citizen journalism unconference. And I'd like to just explain, if for those who didn't read the uh, wiki carefully, what the unconference means. It means that you are the panel. It's the idea here is that the collected knowledge and wisdom of this room uh, far exceeds any small number of us who we could put front of you, and that uh, in the format of an unconference, which our friend Dave Weiner uh, has significantly pioneered and which we are uh, shamelessly copying today, what we want to do is learn what you all know and uh, learn from each other, and I think it's going to be a terrific day. We, the sign-up list shows tremendous folks here today, so uh, this should be, I think, a good time for everyone to learn. A uh, couple of administrative things. The uh, lunch will be upstairs, uh, is that right, in, in Ropes Gray, which we'll, we'll just, it'll be easy to find. I see it's raining, so we're not going to be having to go outdoors. And uh, I want to introduce Doc Searles, the Doc Searles. Not <laughs> None of those fake ones. <laughs> who is who is doing something wonderful for us today, and that is uh, on a, the web, kind of in real time, Doc is going to do a docnography, which is um, basically telling us what we're saying to each other. And we're going to, at the end of the day, have all this archived, and we will then proceed from there, which is which is very cool. And the IRC folks are going to be chatting away uh, on Freenode, and we're going to be chatting away in here. The format is that we have wonderful expert moderators who are going to basically uh, tell you a little bit about things that they're doing and what they know, and then uh, pull out of you things you know. And uh, the, uh, we have six folks doing it. I'll introduce them each uh, as they're about to speak. And we're, they're going, uh, it's, it's sort of one hour each, except that it's a 50-minute hour, uh, kind of like psychiatry. Um, and possibly we all need our heads examined in order to be doing citizen journalism, so this, this may make sense. So... Uh, in order to stay precisely on schedule, uh, I have one minute to do something extremely important, which is to thank some people. And uh, Erica George over here, who is the... 
she's on the staff of the Berkman Center and has been really the uh, principal uh, organizer of everything that actually works today. Anything that doesn't actually work today, you can blame me. Uh, and Colin Reinsmith, uh, where's Colin? I don't see him. I see his computer, but so he's around. He's he's also been helping on this and working on the. Uh, uh, recording which we're doing for web uh, a webcast which will be available later and uh, the Berkman Center in general uh, I, I want to thank for really sponsoring this thing and we have some colleagues here from Berkman and uh, including one who will be moderating later but uh, I, I really appreciate. I'm I'm honored to be part of the Berkman Center because it's a great organization. So let's start right off with Lisa Williams, who is uh, the author of the H2O Town blog and uh, site for uh, a place called uh, Watertown, which makes sense. And she's going to talk with us and you're going to talk with her about local and uh, I, I won't say much more than that. Lisa has a few things to show you and then she will uh, bring you in and please welcome Lisa. Thanks. first um, apologize. I know that, that um, slides, in particular PowerPoint slides, are probably the most unconference thing that you can get. And I'm doing this for a very specific reason. I feel like the conversation that we're having collectively on the net it, it, about citizen journalism has come to a really stale place where um, you know, uh, um, bloggers and journalists kind of uh, point fingers at each other and uh, uh, um, and I feel like there's not much going on. I feel like a lot of the things that I read are kind of repetitive. Just this week in the New Yorker, um, there was an article by the dean of the Columbia Journalism School, and the thing that I, I thought, wow, it's, it's very well written, um, you know, and it also sounds exactly like an article that appeared in um, uh, the Annenberg uh, Online Journalism Review almost a year ago. Uh, it's almost a point-by-point -point recitation. So... Um, I'm going to take a little time at the beginning just to give you a brief offering. This is what I hope to give you of uh, a little sort of fuel for the conversation to hopefully bring us to someplace new and different and interesting at the end of the hour when we, um, when we uh, finish up. Um, I called it this because I, I made a bet with Jay Rosen that I could find a, a thousand local blogs over lunch. And a lot of people... Uh, and, and I'm, I said, he said, well, how many do you think they are? And I said, well, at least 1,000. And he kind of like looked up from his salad like, are you nuts? You know, and I, one of the things I've noticed about the conversation about citizen journalism is that people tend to use the same examples again and again. There's about a dozen examples that they use, and that's about it. Um, I happen to be one of those examples, and that's nice for me, but I, but I actually know how unfair it is because I get tons of email from people in... 
places all over the United States saying, hey, I have one of these too. Um, and one of the, the reasons I wanted to do this work um, was to actually collect them and be sort of a web botanist for these kinds of things. But I'd also like to talk about what a place blog is. Um, one of the things that, that I think people get confused about is that they'll look at a place blog and there's some stuff that looks like news um, and then there's something about somebody's cat. And they're all sort of mixed together. Um, and there's this, there's, uh, the, the typical criticism of a place blog is that, well, it's minor. You know? And what I'd like to say about place blogs is that they're an act of sustained attention to a place over time taken by a group of people. They're about the lived experience of the place. And sometimes people's attention will fall on things that um, a newspaper would cover, like City Hall or um, uh, Natural Disaster. But in general, there's really um, uh, uh, there's, there's not necessarily a whole lot of... Um, uh, overlap between them. There is some, but a lot of the attention of a place blog will be simply on things that would never make the newspaper. And I feel it's important to actually defend that kind of content a little bit um, and, uh, and uh, say that um, that's actually important to the people who live there. Um, that's part of their conversation that they're having about their place. Um, oops. Sorry, that isn't working. Unfortunately, if that would scroll, you'd see the uh, list of about 350 place blogs that I've collected already. Um, when I sat down and sort of collected what I had, I had about 100. And then I started going on a state-by-state -state basis. And um, I feel pretty confident that I'm actually going to get to that 1,000 place blog place. Um, it's also... Uh, the case that once I, once I started to collect all those things, they fell into sort of useful buckets. Um, there were a lot of solo operator blogs by uh, one person who wanted to talk about the place that they live in. Um, and there are a ton of group blogs. Okay? These are blogs that they have more than one author, but they're not open access. Um, then there are community blogs. Um, yeah, some of you, I hope, I hope you've heard of um, iBrattleboro on a lot of these blogs. And then there's um, blogging networks, uh, Metro blogging the IS, and that's, uh, you know, Gotham is Boston is Seattleist. Um, uh, the Met blog network, there's also the Hello City network, which is probably a less well-known one. Um, and then there are sort of filter blogs. In places where you find uh, larger populations, there's actually lots and lots of media to point to. So these blogs act more like a filter than um, a, a site of original content, although they have original content too. Um, there are also um, aggregators, places where people said, okay, all the bloggers in a, in a specific um, uh, in a specific geographical area will get together and they'll have a live aggregated page of posts from um, blogs in that area. Um, and then there are also a lot of um, essentially regional newspapers or um, newspapers that are, say, uh, outside of major media markets um, that are starting sort of blog communities around um, their newspaper. They're wrapping it around themselves. There are also a lot of state house blogs. I don't know how I feel about these because these tend to be um, partisan and political, um, but a lot of them are doing um, actual um, news coverage. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to include them a little bit. I want to I make sure that everybody knows that I'm not saying that newspapers do nothing. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to be a little modest and let let newspaper define let newspaper people define and and tell us what they do well. But I just wanted to give sort of an idea of sort of um, where we overlap with them. Um, one of the things I noticed as I started to collect place blogs, and this was a hunch that I had before I started to collect them, was that there was a hot spot. There was a hot spot in um, cities and towns of uh, populations around 30,000 to 60,000. And as I started to collect it more, I noticed that it, it actually um, lapped out a little bit at both ends. And this isn't um, actual, this isn't the numbers of place blocks. These are numbers of cities in the United States. So, um, you know, there are only a tiny number of cities with population above one million, but there's a huge number of, of cities and towns in this space. And I think one of the reasons that we have place blogs um, in those places is because they're actually covered pretty poorly by the media. Um, this is a chart talking about... Okay, who's laughing and why? <laughs> okay, just because it's a really crazy chart? Okay. Um, I was just dissing the Cambridge Chronicle. Both the, the, um, the, the Cambridge Chronicle and the, the local paper where I live, the Watertown Tab, are all owned by the same chain. Um, and um, essentially what's happened to, um, uh, to local media for those communities of you know, 20 to 70,000 is that they've been bought up by private equity investors. What will happen is one of these guys um, will bankroll um, a, um, you know, a family-owned newspaper company. Um, let's say the older generation wants to get out. Okay, so the private equity investor will come in and say, um, we'll give you some cash to recapitalize, and what we want you to do is we want you to make a mini chain, make a mini mogul out of yourself, do a, do a roll-up. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with that except for one thing. Um, these guys, uh, they're not like the mortgage that holds your bank. They want their money back, and they want it back you know, in a relatively short period of time, let's say three to seven years, and they want a huge premium on it. A lot of people talk about, oh, well, you know, public ownership of media is bad, but private ownership of media isn't necessarily a lot better. When we look at um, local media in, um, in the Boston area, um, CNC owns virtually every newspaper in the sort of 128 ring. They own about 80 newspapers. Um, for a while, they were part of Herald. Herald was bankrolled by these guys, but they wanted their money back, so they, um, so they sold the chain. Now, they sold it to another group of, of uh, private equity investors. Now, those people will want to, um, want to flip it, too. So what we have going on is a sort of hot potato game. When, um, when these guys um, got their money back through CNC, um, they were, uh, there were different estimates, and this is all private, so it's hard to know. Um, but they got back, you know, anywhere between... Some, some people say um, 25 million for part of it. Other people have a much, much higher number. But that's um, not going into the news. Now this new equity investor will buy it, and they don't want to keep it either. So what, how are they going to make it attractive to the next group of equity investors? Well, they're going to cut. That's what they're going to do. You know, and I think um, the other, the other um, thing that's notable about local media is that... Um, a lot of people say, oh, well, bloggers can't compete with newspapers because they don't have enough resources. I'm not actually outnumbered by my local newspaper. My local newspaper has one reporter. Okay? So, um, you know, and that's, that's um, not their fault. And actually, we've been, we've been really um, lucky in that we've gotten some really gifted people in that position. And, yeah, they, have a, they are essentially getting paid um, to do it, and they have all day to do it, and that's great. 
Um, but what we have is this incredible shrinkage um, of media in these places. And place blogs, I think, are, are growing up as a, as a result of that. It's also the case that um, you know, Americans are moving to these places where there isn't any news, where it's harder for regional dailies to service them. And all out in the rings, there are these chain newspapers. So um, urban populations are sinking and um, exurban and suburban populations are growing. So people are moving to places where there's poor media coverage. And they're saying, well, geez, I don't know what's going on. Um, this is actually from H2O Town. This, uh, this, this, uh, this one photo provoked huge amount of uh, snarky comments. There was a big um, globe billboard, and it says, if there's a story on Arsenal Street, we'll cover it. You know, and, um, and, and people just absolutely went to town on it. Um, when I actually talked to the Globe reporter who covers Watertown, she says, well, people say we don't cover Watertown. I, I do Watertown 100 stories a year. <laughs> right? And you know what? They're probably making the right decision about the precious column inches, about what advertising pays for. I often say about Watertown, you know, if there was a lot of news in Watertown, I'd have to move. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, but you can pick up the paper day after day after day, and it might be a week or two weeks before you read anything about what, where we live in Watertown. And that's because we don't have a lot of news, okay? But we still have this appetite to talk to each other and talk about things that are um, of importance to us that maybe don't rise to the level of news. And we also want consistency. I think people put down the globe for... Um, uh, for local news and, and stop reading it because, you know, after six or seven days of reading it and not seeing anything about your town, you say, well, geez, there's nothing in here and they don't come back. It's just like a, a static website where, you know, it doesn't change for a while. You know, and then our local paper has gotten a lot smaller too. One of, uh, this is the last thing I have to say. One of the things I wanted to do is a, a sort of thought experiment about local blogs. Um, what I did is I took um, numbers, uh, population numbers, Okay, um, So I said, well, what if a tiny percentage of uh, cities and towns in each population category had their own site? Now, in the one million range, I actually gave them all one because they actually do all have one, right? But, um, in fact, some of them have more, and I should actually correct that. But um, once you can get to very big numbers with tiny, tiny percentages. I'm taking percentages that are like 2 3% of cities and towns have them. Um, and actually, um, I think I'll actually find more than this number when I actually go through and count. Now, once you do that, um, one of the questions is, um, let's see here, page down. Um, once you do that and you say, well, how much, how much is the potential population reach? If that number of cities um, has place blogs, how many people could they potentially reach if everybody looked at it? That's what this slide says. So um, even with a very small number of sites, you're reaching a hell of a lot of people. The, the population in the United States is only about 300 million. Okay? And, and, and you apply very tiny growth rates to these, and you get to, you get to big numbers pretty fast. Now... Then there's the question of, you know, which tiny percentage of them became readers. And this I based on um, my personal experience and the experience of people who um, run place blogs and were willing to share traffic numbers with me. And I said, well, how many people, you know, what's your traffic numbers versus your population? Okay. 
So the actual numbers you get are really, uh, are in this case, are, are um, a heck of a lot smaller. I don't think that we can expect penetration for place blogs to rise to the level of uh, newspapers anytime fast. I don't think you can really rush growing community. Um, and so, um, uh, so you come up with um, this kind of stuff. And there's one more thing. I was very interested in something that Jimmy Wales said in a presentation. He said that um, 0.72% uh, of Wikipedia users um, produce 50% of the edits. Um, and so uh, one, of the, one of the things that I think the myths that people have about place blogs is that they'll just open a place blog and people will rush in there and contribute content. Um, and I really don't know anybody for whom, that the, for whom that's actually true. And if, you, and if you then say, well, the hotspot for local blogs is in places of 20 to 70,000, um, you end up with you know, registered users and, and uh, numbers of people who, are, who would be contributors being very small. You know, small enough that it's kind of hard to say, well, um, if we were just depending on these people for producing all the content, even if they blogged, every day, all day long, it wouldn't be enough to produce a really sort of thriving site that people would want to come back to. One of the things I say to people who say, well, geez, I want to start a place blog, is I said, well, you should expect to work on it yourself and roll the rock uphill by yourself for about a year. Um, and you should expect to want to do it indefinitely um, because you know, you, you're really not going to get um, tons and tons of volunteer labor. You might be lucky and get a few people who are really, really, really interested. Um, and those people will be attracted to you automatically. I felt like I had those people right away. I, I, I lovingly call them civics nerds. They're people who go to town meetings for fun. You know, some people bowl, some people fish. That's what these people do, and they want places to talk about it, you know? And these people are really great contributors. And weirdly, almost everybody you talk to has a librarian contributor. I'm not really sure why that is, but God bless them. Okay. Um, they, one of the things I've, I've found is, I, and it kills me when I find this, these are both... Um, essentially recent deaths. These, these blogs um, shut um, less than two, uh, one of them shut less than a month ago and one of them shut less than three months ago. And I emailed them and I asked them, well, why'd you shut? You know, what, why'd you stop doing it? And they said it was, it was too much work, you know, and not enough people were contributing. People have this idea of the web as sort of a place of magical work creation. And that's not really true. And I think that should be um, sort of comforting to people in the news industry is that, you know, it's not the case that there's going to be some magical self-assembling newspaper in these places. Um, you know, so I don't actually, when I do the math, I find it difficult to believe that that's going to work. And then, you know, another thing is, um, you know, what if they made uh, $1,000 a month? Well, you get to a number that, um, you know, isn't very big. Like, if I showed that number to a venture capitalist, I don't think they'd be really all that excited, okay? Um, you know, if you, if you thought about it that way. Now, some people will make more than that, and some people will make less. A whole lot of people will make less. Um, but it's one of the problems facing place blogs, okay? Which is there's a mismatch between locales with low enough competition and people with enough scale to create a natural pool of participants. And in particular, I think this is a big one, which is that um, place blogs have sprung up because tools are cheap or free. Um, but the cost of getting advertisers has stayed exactly the same. You still have to put feet on the street if you want local advertisers. Okay? And online advertising meshes very poorly in, with local sites. Um, I think this would change if we had better geolocation technology. 
Um, one of the things that um, I find remarkable is I'm actually doing this very, very manually. When I talk to people about, well, how did you find out about bloggers who actually live in the geographical area where you live, um, they'll say, I ran into them. Okay? Why is it that way? Why can't I go to Google and say, show me everything in Birmingham? You know? But it's not, actually, it's not actually the case. There are some geotagging technologies, but they're really not um, very well developed yet. And geotagging would um, not only help people discover local blogs and discover local content within blogs, but it would help advertising a ton. So that, um, I, I'm no more slides, I promise. Um, and um, I want to greet one person who's been one of my heroes forever, which is Robert Winters, who um, does the Cambridge Journal. Oh, sorry. I don't mean to embarrass you, Robert. But Robert's been doing this way before there was blogs and before hyperlocal was um, you know, even, um, even a word. Um, and I think, it's, uh, I think it's really admirable. How many people here are actually running hyperlocal sites? Find hyperlocal exactly. Well, a, a, a site about a place, a place block. So, so we're going to, Colin and I will go with mics to people who want to. We're, since we're going to have webcast of this, we'd like to have people who are going to uh, be in this conversation talk over one of these mics, and Colin and I will run around the room. There's somebody back here with a question. good question. One of the things that, that I saw was that you'd find competition in kind of the strangest places. There are two really, really good hyperlocal community sites in Juneau, Alaska. Okay, There's one that's aff affiliated with a newspaper called um, Juneau Empire, and there's another one called Did You Know? <laughs> and um, so sometimes you do get um, competition and people um, feeding off of one another. The most common blocking scenario I saw is that once you got up to about 75,000 to 250,000, now you're getting to places that have decent daily newspapers. And in places where there are decent daily newspapers, there are fewer place blocks. Hi. Oh, I can't steal the mic, right? Okay. Hi. I just, first of all, I just want to say I'm a big fan of your site um, from... Living in Wisconsin. I, I especially like that video that you you do. I showed that to can, a bunch of people. Can we get people to identify themselves oh. so we know who was talking? Thanks. Sorry, I'm I'm Sheldon Rampton. I'm with uh, the Center for Media and Democracy, uh, Sourcewatch, and Congresspedia. Um, I used to work for a, a small town daily newspaper, and it it basically served a county with a population right. of about thirty five thousand, but mostly was seen as representing a city with a population right. of 7,000. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I worked there, they had, uh, there were two things that I found that, that were really memorable to me. One is that, um, that they were really struggling financially, losing subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other is that 
I, over and over again, people would come in and complain about how we, we didn't cover local news anymore. And this is a small town paper that was only supposed to cover local news. So I went back in and looked at the, at the you know, morgue of old issues, and I found out that sometime around the 1950s or 60s, the content changed of that paper. It used to contain these little items that would say, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Green went to Chicago to visit with their daughter-in-law, and they had a nice visit. That would be a news item. And that's yep. what people were missing. Yep. And it's, at some point, they replaced that with fillers that would say things like, Nixon goes to China, taken yeah, from a, Associated AP, Pre- AP Press. But, but what that tells me is that there was a business model out there until a few decades ago that was doing the sort of thing you're doing, only it was doing it uh, using printing presses and a much more expensive technology for producing and distributing the paper. So it seems to me that there... That there at least in my experience, that there really is a, a demand out there for a type of journalism that, that doesn't seem like, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, but that a lot of people certainly wanted in, in my community, and I, I just can't quite understand why it's not making money yet. You know, it's funny. I wrote, I wrote, I, I had the opportunity to write an essay on PressThink, and I got a, a comment from an anonymous commenter. A lot of the commenters on PressThink are anonymous, I think, because they work for newspapers and they don't want to get um, deuced fired for commenting on a blog or for blogging, which I identify with, but he's like, well, this, is, this stuff is absolutely the most boring stuff I've ever read, and we used to do this, and it, we called it country correspondence, and he gave almost the exact same example that you did, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so did X, Y, uh, X, Y, and Z, and he, he had a really memorable phrase. He said, um, it was like gargling barbed wire to write this stuff. Um, so I think um, maybe Woodward and Bernstein does have something to do with it in that um, journalists had a different idea of themselves um, after a certain point. Matt, let me interject in that one. There's a fairly prom- well-known story in the journalism business about a guy who worked for a big metro daily and went back to his hometown to buy the local paper, Little Weekly. First thing he did was to kill the Aunt Mabel went with some apple pie to... Beatrice's house, and they, everyone had a good time. He killed that column and got so many protests and cancellations that the next thing he did was to reinstate that column. And it seems like there may be a lesson in that. I'm with Public Journalism Network, pjnet.org. And Yoji Benkler has a couple, he just came out with a book called. Uh, um, wealth of Networks, and he put out a paper called Coises Penguin and also Sharing Nicely. And he talks about the Sharing Nicely piece of it, and I use that sort of as a, a way of looking at a continuum from Sharing Nicely to citizen journalism. Sharing Nicely is a lot of people are willing to do a lot of little things at their own time. They're not so willing to do big tasks when you want them to do the big tasks. And that would be, on that side, the big task piece would be the citizen journalism piece. I, I often use the example of somebody comes up to you and says, gee, where's the bus stop for downtown? You'll maybe walk out of your way, you'll show them where it is. On the other hand, if they ask you, gee, would you give me a ride downtown? Some might do it, but most will not. And so that's kind of, asking for the ride downtown is citizen journalism. It's a big piece the other thing is to get the sharing nicely to work well, you need often a big pool of people to tap into, and you don't have that big pool as the smaller your town becomes. But anyhow, I think 
a place like Minnesota Public Radio uses it with their public insight journalism. They have 13,000 people who they tap into with email, and the people participate. They usually ask them like one question, one small task a month. They bring them together every once in a while. So I think in ter- if you think in terms of sharing nicely versus citizen journalism, maybe you look for uh, you know, little things that you can bring a lot of different people together and not ask a lot from them. Doc has a... Yeah. Um, do I need a microphone? Or can I just be loud? Um, yeah. In, uh, I live in Santa Barbara where um, uh, there's a couple of subjects there. One we can cover later, which is what happens when the local newspaper collapses or gradually collapses. The other one is uh, we have a, a local uh, place blog called Ed Hat, and Ed Hat does nothing but... I wouldn't call it the Aunt Mabel stuff, but a lot of it is... A lot of it is People's cats, um, interesting experiments with uh, you know laying a bunch of pennies down State Street and, and counting how many people pick them up. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a, but the guy's a very clever writer. He's a um, a Princeton mathematician, so he really loves to count everything. But it's a primary source for all the lowest local gas prices, the prices at the farmers market. Uh, who has the cheapest lattes in town? He, cre- he creates maps that are better than Google's maps with where if you mouse over uh, a place in town, you see where all the cheapest um, you know, prices for shoes or whatever it is might be. It's, it's really interesting citizen journalism of the non-hard news sort. And he actually sees his role as, well, the newspaper's going to do the hard news, and I'm going to do what's essentially the soft news that is still kind of living section stuff that's, that's interesting. It's, and it's, it's always annoyed me that there's never been a symbiosis between, between the paper and this guy, because he's doing a fabulous job. He also has an email news list of about three or 4,000 people on it, and, um, and so he gets a lot of contribution from that. But right now, as the local newspaper's falling apart, He's, he's trying to find somebody to do some of the hard news work, and as far as I know, it ain't happening yet. So, I'm Connor Kenny with Congresspedia, and one of the, we're actually interested in something which is kind of a hybrid of Aunt Mabel's apple pie and Nixon Goes to China, which is uh, people in local areas covering what happened, or Nixon going to China is going to drive down the price of the apples in Aunt Mabel's apple pie. And so we're really looking for blogs and other citizen journalism sites that are produced locally but cover national politics from a local angle and are looking to actually work in the midst of creating a national directory of these. So if anyone here operates them or or knows about them, uh, come see me and and we're interested in in promoting and and really fostering these local blogs. Where where are you? I I missed the beginning because I was still talking. Congresspedia. Oh, great. Congresspedia. Great. Hi, I'm Jessica Duda with the Center for Social Media. I'm wondering if you know if any sites like EdHat have the possibility of being listed in like a lonely, lonely planet because Santa Barbara, I'm sure, is a wonderful place to visit. So when you have these small towns that have some tourist attraction to them, uh, that there might be a potential for people visiting could learn more about where they're going. Um, I went to Woodstock, Vermont recently, and I would have loved to learn more about what it's like to live there. And the local paper I saw just told you how to decorate your house and a lot of adverts. So do you think that that might be a possibility for towns near places that other people want to visit? I think it's a great idea. And actually, weirdly, um, resort towns um, seem to have more than the usual number of place blogs. Um, Bluffton, to, Bluffton is across, uh, across the water from Hilton Head um, and has a really active uh, sort of local 
um, site. And I don't know if anybody's doing that on purpose. I haven't seen that people have. Um, but I got to tell you, I read a lot of these sites for fun. You might think that's a little nutty. But I actually want to visit some of these places now because, because I've been sort of eavesdropping on their conversation and because one of the big things that people contribute is photographs. Um, so you get to see what a place looks like as well. Uh, let me just add one thing about Ed Hat, and this is of, I don't think it's peculiar. Santa Barbara is a remote, uh, remote, a resort town. It's remote too. It's kind of the Maui of California. Um, but uh, it, because the local paper uh, puts its archives behind a paywall, it's a, a black hole on the yes. web, whereas the place blogs are you know, kind of stand out, so it's actually easier to find them. Now, I, I like your idea, though, of tying them into Lonely Planet and places like that. There really should be connections between those things. And we should make it a lot easier to find 101 material. That's kind of like, I think, a, a, a thing about blogs that it actually makes it hard to do um, a, a different and other than reverse chronology stream of events kind of stuff. Hi, Elizabeth Osder, and I actually work for, I'm here sort of my own interest, but also work for Yahoo News, and I run Yahoo News' local effort in uh, news search engine. And so I wanted to just call your attention to the, um, what you talked about, the discovery and um, classification of blogs. You did a great job explaining, just giving the title of Place Blogs was just so refreshing. It was so refreshing to hear you sort of recast citizen journalism this morning, and it, to give voice to the different kinds of people that are doing it and putting newspapers down on number seven on the list. And I just wanted folks to think a little bit more about the, the power in the classification you put forward and the ability to help make uh, place blogs more discoverable by search engines and for people whose businesses to redirect them back to locally. And I think that there's a lot you could do with tagging and metadata and you know, not um, bringing down anything with any kind of standards, but I'm very interested in trying to surface and classify and point people to this work, and I'd love to have further discussion about how we can do that. It is very hard to disambiguate yes. all the kinds of things that are published as blogs from the things that are local credible place blogs, and we have, um, and I'm, I work on a daily basis on trying to sort that out, so I'd love to talk to people more about that. Yeah, could, I, could, that's Can we huge. ask you later to help us uh, with a... Uh, some ideas on how to use the meta tags and things like that, so people will and we'll post that. Okay. Uh, Robert. Uh, Robert Winters, uh, serving Cambridge faithfully for nine years, long since I guess the word blog existed. Uh, I just want to just make a few quick points. The first one was um, I was I was curiously see that you brought up this this what I would call a paradox of the sort of the suburban or the small town where uh -huh. the big city actually gets less of this production yeah. than the small one. Because that's actually similar to what happens with the local newspapers. Yeah. If, if you're in a place like Cambridge right. um, and you're living on the shoulder of Boston, yeah. so to speak, a typical Cambridge resident these days, this may not have been true 50 years ago, but certainly these days, will probably be re picking up the Globe, yep. Herald, well, in Cambridge, I guess it's the Globe, right? <laughs> uh, and, or the New York Times. Right. And whereas if, further, if you go further out from Cambridge, it's mm -hmm. more likely that a person will be interested in the local newspaper right. than it is if you're living right next to the big town. 
There's, um, there's a really interesting work by the Brookings Institution called First Suburbs, which is about inner urban suburbs. So neither, I think, you know, when, when, when people talk about sites like H2O Town and Robert, I, uh, Robert's site, Cambridge Journal, I think they get the sense that we live in the sticks. I, we don't. I, I can see the Boston skyline from my backyard, and we share a border with Boston. And in a way, they're kind of in the worst spot for media because they get overshadowed by the daily paper but often don't have a very good um, sort of uh, local paper. They're kind of not far enough away. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other points. Um, I'm just curious, because uh, especially when I hear the term advertising revenue and whatever, you know, when I started doing what I do, it certainly was with the presumption that I will never receive a dime from what I do. It's just going to, we're just going to do it, and that's it. Now, I saw, again, I, this is just sort of, if anybody wants to comment on this in a minute, um, I don't have any idea how many people are in it to actually possibly initiate a little bit of a business opportunity, and right. how many people are just doing it as a charity, right? I mean, I do it as a charity, but I, I don't, I have no idea about that. Um, another point I was going to make here is um, one problem with local newspapers and this is related to the sort of Pat Purcell issue here, and I certainly found this in Cambridge's papers, was that the reporters, the number of local journalists in these local papers here um, who actually had any roots in their communities was vanishingly low. Uh, There was virtually no institutional memory, no long-term memory, so that they were even in a position to write about Aunt Mabel unless somebody basically called them up and said, please write this. Right. And in fact, oftentimes I'd see in Cambridge that the only time you'd see articles of that nature was because somebody sent them something and they printed it verbatim. Yeah, and they're very, they're low-paying jobs. They're entry-level journalism jobs, so the reporters turn over a lot. And the last little thing I just want to say here is one phenomenon that I found very, very useful in Cambridge was that if I were to so-called break a story or initiate yeah. something, um, it was often the case that the, report, the local reporters were, were checking it out periodically. And, it, and I can't tell you how many times it actually then led to the Cambridge Chronicle or Boston Globe story the following week. So one role yeah. that the citizen journalist has is actually is a sort of a symbiotic right. relationship with the local r- reporters. And that's something I, for the most part, yeah. have tried to foster yeah. over time. Yeah, I actively leak to our local paper. If the dailies had any brains, they would be pointing to you, not, not just using you as a tip sheet. Um, others? I'm just very curious whether when uh, a story that you broke uh, gets then reported by some other larger um, publication, if you're actually credited, because I've, I've seen experiences, I've had experiences where um, I've done all the research and then uh, you know, the Ombudsman for Corporation for Public Broadcasting uses my exact words and you know, I, I, as far as he's concerned, I, I don't exist. The answer is usually you get some credit. I never ask for it, but usually you get it. Occasionally I've actually seen a local paper editorial which was my exact sentences. Uh, but I looked at it, I said, what, what's the, the phrase, uh, uh, something is the best form of flattery? Uh, yeah. 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 You never bothered me. Imitation may be flattery. Plagiarism is plagiarism. <laughs> 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 um, I'm, sorry. I'm Jason Pramus uh, with the UMass Boston Tactical Media Group. Hi, Robert. <laughs> and, uh, I um, 
Gee, I have a few observations. Um, one is that, Robert, you were ripped off. I, I mean, I, I did a big investigative piece in my small national magazine in 95 and had Newsweek rip it off, and, and I, it doesn't feel any better if it's on a lower level. Um, well, I grew up in a industrial, uh, kind of post-industrial town north of Boston, Peabody, Massachusetts, yeah. right? And um, when I, this is in the, you know, uh, 70s, you know, when yeah. I was, you know, paper boy in, in, in the early 80s. And even at that time, the local papers, the Peabody Times and the Salem Evening News, would cover local, regional, and national, you know, uh, stories, right, with their own staff plus wire, right? Um, but there was definitely, like, it was definitely possible growing up in, in these uh, kind of industrial suburbs to um, not have to buy any other paper but the local one and still be an informed citizen. Plus, you know, watch the local TV news and get a little bit more, and, you know. Uh, and that's not the case now, partially because of the private equity phenomenon you, you mentioned and uh, there's some other things going on as well. So I, I really would agree with the second Congresspedia uh, person who commented that uh, um, there... I think place bloggers should should definitely try to think about how they can work in larger level discussions uh, of of uh, politics and culture and whatnot uh, into their uh, local uh, local reportage. Uh, the, the second thing I was going to say is that uh, um, it, I think it is important that people think about how, and I'm probably going to keep saying this all day, uh, how folks doing. Uh, citizen media can get paid for what they do. I mean, you know, th this is part. You know, this is part of the problem. I mean, the, the papers that used to exist used to pay a dozen staff people, right, to mm -hmm. do various kinds of, of reporting, and and that budget just went away in favor of a little entertainment reporting and just you know bringing in ad revenues as an ad sheet just for profit, right, for the companies that own these papers now. Um, and I don't want to see a situation where folks like Robert are, are just or, or you know. Um, Lisa, just, you know, um, uh, doing a lot of good work and having other folks who, you know, the remaining folks that do get paid for the work uh, kind of grab it up and, and uh, do stuff with it. I, I think that uh, this, this stuff is important, and uh, we need to think more about, about how, you know, by subscription or by ads or whatever, you know, how people are going to make a living at it. Um, you know, uh, I could also get off my hind end and go ask people for advertisement, which is something that I really haven't, haven't done and I think is a really hard job, and that's one of the reasons that people who do that at newspapers get paid for it. I actually think it's a lot harder and less fun than actually doing it. Um, I, I, I think the thing underneath your question is, um, if they don't make money, will they still be around? And I think a lot of people say, well, um, unless these sites figure out a way to make money, they'll just collapse. I'm not so sure that that's true. When I look around at my local area and I say, what organizations have been around for more than 100 years? Churches, um, voluntary organizations and fraternal organizations, the YMCA, they're not businesses. They're voluntary organizations. And actually, H2O Town is explicitly modeled not on a business but on a voluntary organization because one of my totally crackpot notions and goals for this is I would like it to be around after I die. And after, um, and once, uh, the only way to do that is to get, uh, to make it useful enough to enough people and to get enough people to have a sense of ownership of it um, that they would, that they would pick up the ball. 
and actually like adding a lot of like advertisers and, and cost to the structure may actually make it less stable. The H2O town succession plan? <laughs> I do have children. <laughs> Hello, uh, Jessica Duda from Center for Social Media. I was a citizen journalist for Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C., and I covered local issues with a show called Metro Watch. And one thing that might speak to the issue that you're talking about with regards to payment, because about 95% of their, bro- their hosts are, are volunteers and so have been doing it for 25 years, is that one, it's a public service. If you want to you know, donate your time, and as most of us should, to some cause. That's one way to think about it. Another way is that some people who have certain jobs can do this as a part of their jobs. There are some people who work for the D.C. city government, and they actually and they work in the health department, and they have a show about D.C. health. Um, another person is an environmental activist, and he does a really great show uh, called Earthbeat, and it's just one day a week for an hour. So... Uh, radio, you get it's a different dynamic, but um, but you know those are two ways to consider it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hi, my name is Gordon Josloff. I'm the founding editor of WestportNow.com in Westport, Connecticut, and currently the publisher. Uh, I've spent 30 years in journalism as a professional and started Westport Now in 2003. I had to dial back from being editor. Uh, last November when I was elected first selectman of Westport, which is the equivalent of mayor of Westport. I think they got tired of corrupt politicians in Connecticut and decided that a, a journalist might try a hand at it. I'm troubled a little bit by the, you know, by the term citizen media. Uh, Westport now breaks stories regularly, uh, has photos that I think any newspaper, you're, you're looking at one there, would envy, uh, you know, of a, events that occur uh, we had a uh, there's a controversy in Westport about a school teacher who was fired, and many parents are protesting. Uh, one of the parents uh, sent us 37 pages of evaluations of the teacher. We loaded that up as a PDF document, uh, the only place where people could find it. We have uh, on a good day 200 contributors on a Memorial Day parade, various pictures. It's it's become the daily newspaper of Westport, Connecticut. We have two weeklies one which publishes on Wednesday and Friday, the other on Thursday. So we have newspapers coming out Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, but nothing the rest of the week. And it's a very vibrant, uh, vocal community with lots of opinions. Uh, the, the advent of digital cameras has been a boon for us because we now, as I say, have many citizens who contribute. One of our most popular features is the teardown of the day. This is... Uh, <laughs> I love, I love this part of Westport now. There's a lot about real estate, and real estate is one of the staples of these local sites. Absolutely. One of the most popular uh, features on Westport now are the property transfers. Yep. And I can't tell you how many times I get calls from people who say, will you please remove my name and listing from the property transfers because it shows up on Google and Yahoo and everything else. And I say, no, we can't. It's a public document. Yeah. And it's published in several newspapers. They said yes, but the only place people are finding it is on Westport now. Yep, yep. So it's it's become a very vibrant part of the community. And I think that I encourage those who've retired from the newsroom or those who are thinking of leaving the newsroom or have been uh, golden handshaked out of newsrooms to start local sites because I think they are a uh, vibrant part of the journalism community. And I think mixing citizens with pros are the way to go. I think we've, we've gained credibility because we don't, we don't take a personal view on things. It's become a daily news source for Westport, Connecticut. Also, um, it's fun. 
I mean, would, would people have to pay you to stop, or? No, they threatened me. They'd rather see me be doing uh, Westport now than being the first elected in Westport. Gordon's a real pioneer, by the way, for people who don't know that. And you're actually now a pioneer in a new way, which is that you're editor, publisher, and uh, politician covering yourself. Sort of like, you're the Berlusconi of Westport. I've done a Bloomberg, and that, uh, you know, he doesn't cover himself, but still has financial interests, and that's the only interest I have in it. it. It's an interesting issue. We don't have a session on that today, but we probably will in another one of these. Uh, others? Someone over here with a... The rain's in the back. Too. Let's take someone who hasn't spoken yet here. Hello, I'm Eve Sullivan, founder of Parents Forum, and we're publishing our handbook online through Creative Commons. I'm especially interested in Lisa's mention of of two things, succession, because I don't want to do this forever, although it is fun, (laughs) Um, writing news bits now and then and running parents groups, but also the theme that I hear running through much of what people say is community building and the social sector is where I guess most of us are working and, and we're needed and we shouldn't be bought. It, it makes me quite cross to see streets that are supposed to, or highways that are supposed to be maintained by the government sponsored by companies. So I'll leave it with that. Thank you. Do the, do the company's workers repair the potholes? <laughs> There's one way up back and one over here. Hi, I'm Reince Cohen, and my fiancé helps organize the West Berkeley Neighborhood Development Corporation at westberkeley.com. And it's a group that they've been focusing on economic justice, and so they've used an approach which could be great for any place blog of putting in a public records request, getting the city business listings in a database form, and publishing that and help driving the local business, and then in the directory uh, being able to easily sell advertising against that in a fairly automated way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, help, help drive the business local and help give people new opportunities for engagement. Each one, they don't do this yet, but could easily lead to a wiki around each business yeah. and local comments on businesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last one. Hi, uh, Jason Calacanis, CEO of Weblogs Inc. and uh, General Manager of Netscape. Um, one of the things that I love about the space is that actually I don't think it's going to become a big business. I don't, I don't Even in aggregate, if you have 100 of these sites or 50 of them, that's why you haven't seen a lot of investment in it. And, and I think it sort of brings everybody back to why people used to create these small things in the, in the beginning, which was because they had a vested interest in it and they did it because they enjoyed it. You know, the, the local advertising market is making, you know, little bits of money. Uh, right. You know, and the transaction cost of advertising, like you talked about, is great. And, and they're just not going to scale, in, in my experience, and, and my belief is that this is going to be a lot of little companies uh, doing it and, and not really getting too far as a business. But they don't necessarily need to. So if people uh, set the goal as yeah. making a living, yeah. it's going to be a tremendous success. If you set the goal as trying to build you know, the next Google or Yahoo or Condé Nast or Advance, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So I think you'll have to keep that in mind when they build them. Exactly. It's not a dot-com business, but that's okay. Doc wants the last word. I I don't want the last word. Uh, uh, It was just an interesting thing, and I don't know if this is a tie-in or not, but at Mashup Camp, there was a a really interesting site called ChicagoCrime.org, and speaking to what 
uh, Reigns was saying, of getting public data into publishable form. When you have public data that is already in publishable form, you can do some really fun things just by mashing up APIs and data. We're, we're going to show something right after lunch that uh, someone in a registered here today has been doing that has, is related to that, which will be a lot of fun. Um, let's thank Lisa for, and thank yourselves. Thanks, Bob. Sure, no problem.